Hello, Monetization Nation. Welcome back to another episode with Michelle Lynn. In the first episode, we talked about Michelle's journey to become an expert in original research and how original research can give us credibility. In today's episode, we'll dive deeper into original research marketing, discussing the specifics of what original research is and how to do it. Tectonic shifts are constantly transforming the earth and business, causing destruction and huge growth opportunities. I'm Nathan William, the host of Monetization Nation, where we learn how to leverage business tectonic shifts to transform monetization. What is original research? So we consider original research to be any type of data that is presented in a new way that provides meaningful, new, unique insights um, that helps a company build the credibility and authority for their brand. So we specifically look at original research as something that you publish out, you know, as part of your marketing efforts. It's, yep. different, it's different than market research, which a lot of people use because that's typically used to make internal marketing, um, you know, to make your, your, your decisions about marketing. So this is publicly published content to establish our credibility and authority. Correct. Love it. All right, next, what is our core objective of doing original research? So one of the questions that we always ask clients when they're starting an original research project is what does success look like you know, to you guys? And a lot of times we'll hear leads, we'll hear we wanna build our subscribers, we'll, we'll hear a lot of um, people who wanna become thought leaders or authorities, or they wanna have some new IP in their space that their brand owns. So, you know, all of these things are very, very tied together, but we always try to focus on what's that one core thing you want to do. So it's typically thought leadership. It's typical, or it's typically building your email list, or it's typically getting leads. What are the four stages of original research projects? So when we look at original research projects, we have a word that we use called idea. And the, it, the, it goes like this. So it says, if you want your research to make an impact, stage one, which we'll talk about, you need credible data, stage two, you need an engaging story, stage three, and then you need an amplification plan. So our research project actually follows these exact four stages. So the impact stage is all around putting together your strategy, understanding why you're doing this, understanding the topic that you want to focus on that's actually going to be new and original, um, really, really trying to understand, working backwards, how your research is going to help you meet those goals you need to meet. The next stage is all around data. So that's putting together your survey, it's programming, it's testing, it's going out to get all of those responses. And then it's doing a lot of data cleaning and data analysis. Um, so you have a really good data set and then using that data you know, to then ex um, explore what all of those key themes are. Then the next stage around exploration is taking what you've learned from the data and putting together your launch plan. So how can you explore these findings to create these really meaningful insights? And how can you present your data in such a way that's gonna be really useful and meaningful to your audience? And then your last step is amplification. And that's all about those things that you do after your research is published so that you continually, you know, get a lot of great energy and results from this, you know, from this project that you have in, invested in. How do I know what topic I should focus on in my research? 
That's a really, really good question. And I think sometimes marketers don't spend enough time trying to figure that out. Like I used an example. I had a client who came to me in the sales enablement space and they said, hey, you know, we want to do research around sales enablement. And if you type in state of, of sales enablement, you'll see like six, seven, eight companies have these state of sales enablement reports out there. So you need to dig in and you really need to understand what already has been done in the space. And then you need to go in a different direction because you need a topic that's meaningful to your audience. It needs to align with your brand and it needs to say something new. So you need to always pivot. So you find your own space and your own um, angle that you are going to be doing a research project on that no one else already has. So the answer is it's, it depends, but you really need to kind of understand what's, what's out there, but do something different. Those are some great criteria to find that, that unique niche for our survey. And, mm -hmm. and that makes a lot of sense. It has to be unique if we're trying to establish thought leadership. We can't have thought leadership if we're parroting something that someone else has already done. Exactly. It needs to say something new. And if you can, I would even try to challenge people's beliefs. If you can challenge people's beliefs with data, that's a really, really powerful thing to do. Yeah. So this next question is one of the hardest things is how do I draft the right questions to get really good, insightful data and, and tell a really good story? So, I mean, I could talk about that all day long, <laughs> but what we typically do is that I always recommend that people, once they have their topic identified, the next thing that they do is they kind of picture their research table of contents, if you will. So what are those key categories that you want your research to focus on? So if you're doing a bigger benchmark study, um, you know, for instance, when we did that, that thought leadership study, we looked at characteristics of thought leadership. We looked at you know, if companies, there was another section that looked at if companies were interested in being a thought leader we looked at different things that companies were doing in their own thought leadership efforts. So really try to uncover like what are those key things you want to learn and then start drafting questions in each of those buckets instead of trying to just draft one big survey. So that's a great place to actually start. Um, and then the next thing to do is to really think about how can you create questions that are providing insights, that are providing stories. Um, because what oftentimes happen especially if people are new to research, they really are using these, they're asking research questions that effectively take an inventory of their industry. Like, what are you doing here? And what are you doing with that? But you might find that those questions are not all that interesting. So instead you really need to shift your thinking and say, how can I ask questions that are going to provide insight? How long should this process of, of doing an original research project take? I would say that, I mean, we have a process that we use with our clients that takes, you know, from strategy until the surveys out in the field that, that takes three weeks. Um, it can be can certainly condensed, but we always know clients have other priorities to work on. Um, so I would say on average, you know, allocate, you know, two to four weeks to create your, you know, get your strategy in place, write your questions, program it, test it. Then your survey needs to be out in the field. So if you're using a panel that can take, you know, days to weeks to happen, um, if you're using your own list, I always just allot for four weeks as an average bucket of time. Um, so then, so right now you're at two months and then at the last step is putting together those findings. Um, and every, as you well know, some people have really fast processes where they can write findings and get it through design and so forth. Mm -hmm. And other clients, it takes longer. So 
I think marketers probably have to have the best idea of what that last stage looks like. It just is going to depend on how quickly your organization works. So long story, I would say, you know, two plus months to get it done, but there's ways to condense that. Definitely. What tools do you recommend from the survey tools to the visualization tools um, or, or anything else? Yeah, I think that you, there's a ton of survey software out there. And I think people think it's easy to create surveys because all this technology exists and a lot of it's low cost. Um, but I would definitely look for a tool that can, that has the capabilities that can do what you want it to do. Like, do you want to have like logic branching and, you know, do you only want to ask certain survey questions to certain people or, you know, do you like how sophisticated do you want your survey to be? I'm a very big believer of making it as easy for people to answer your, your questions so that they get through your survey and you don't have any, any friction. So, you know, definitely find a survey tool that works for you. Um, once you have your data back, there's a lot of different tools out there where you can use to create graphics. I've created a lot of graphics on Vengage, like static charts and images and things like that. I think it works really well for that. Um, and I'm also right now exploring more interactive data viz. So you can click on a chart and look how different segments compare. You can like see how things trend over time. Um, so I'm experimenting with, with a tool called Flourish for that which I haven't done anything publicly with it with it yet, but there's all these different types of data viz tools that you can use that really helps your data tell a really compelling story. Thank you. Uh, how do we choose the right participants for our survey? And then how do we get those right participants? How do we find them and get them to participate in our survey? So for many people, I mean, the easiest way to field a survey is to use a panel of consumers. So these are like adults in the U.S. or adults in the U.K. or wherever that place may be, because you can get these panels. They're relatively easy to access and they're relatively inexpensive. So I have clients who are B2B who do surveys of, of consumers, if you will, to help their B2B audience. Um, so if that's an option for you, that works out great. A lot of B2B marketers don't want to go after a consumer audience. They want to survey other B2B um, people. So the easiest way to do that is if you have access to your own list that's engaged, if you have an email list or a um, community of people who want the insights, who want, who are happy to share the insights, and they also want to learn from those insights, that's the best way to get data. Um, a lot of people don't have that. What you can do is you can the best next thing to do is to partner with someone. So for instance, we did survey a couple years in a row where we wanted to learn about the state of original research. So if how, how are marketers using research and so forth. So we partnered with BuzzSumo, who you mentioned at the beginning, because they wanted to understand how marketers were doing research too. So we put together all of the survey questions and so forth, and then they sent out the survey to their list. So we had the people to participate. And it was a very joint effort, and we both published that um, research data in a really collaborative way. So that can work really, really well if you can find that right partner. Okay. And I'm more than happy to talk about the ins and outs of that. And then the third way is to use panels of B2B participants. Um, I will say B2B panels are tough. They're expensive. There's quality control issues. You need to make sure the people who are actually 
you know, if you're looking at for marketers, are they actually a marketer or are they just trying to get that actual, that, that um, survey incentive from the survey company? So you really need to put a lot of quality checks in, in place and know you're going to spend time and money to get those right people if you use a B2B panel. Right. Yeah. So if I was doing it, I would be looking at our, our target audience is the entrepreneur CEO. So okay. the, the CEO who has built and is running his his company, but is, is entrepreneurial, has the entrepreneurial mindset. Um, I'm connected to probably more than 10 or 15,000 of those kind of people on LinkedIn. So, you know, in theory, I could email those people on LinkedIn and offer them enough of an, or, or message them on LinkedIn and offer them enough of an incentive. Is that what you would recommend or is there a better way to, to find those kind of people? I do not have a big enough list yet. Um, we're, we're pretty new with our show. And so we would need to, we need to reach outside of my list to get enough participants. So I would certainly start with your LinkedIn group. I mean, I would think, to, I would think about what are, what is that thing that's of value to them? Like, what can you give them that is of value? And it might not be a monetary incentive. It could be um, like I had a client and they haven't done this yet, but they were thinking about offering a, a webcast. So you could either pay to go to this webcast or you could take sure. this survey and get, you know, go to this webcast for no cost. So that was like, that was one of their ways that they were trying to incentivize people. Um, is there something, or is there data that you could give to this audience that only those people who take the survey could, could get? So what are those things that that audience really cares about? You could also think about trying to partner with others in your space. You know, I would love to learn a bit more about your space and, and could they send the survey out to their partners? And right. if they have a big enough, enough list, you could say, you know, here's the survey we're asking. And then you could give them their own cut of the data. So they see how their audience answered that, yeah. you know, those questions specifically. So that can really entice people to want to share it out with their audience. Um, so there's a lot of different ways to go about it. It just, it's probably a bit of a longer conversation, but there's, um, you, you have definitely have different options. Okay. How many survey respondents do we need for, for there to be a large enough statistical sample for the data to be credible? So if you are going after a consumer based audience, and if you're trying to, I generally recommend at minimum, you have a thousand people. That said, if you're going after a B2B audience where you know, you might be going after, like you said, CEOs or entrepreneurial minded CEOs. In my opinion, you don't need a thousand of those people to have a really interesting, credible study just because that sample size is so much smaller. And there isn't, there are sample size calculators out there that you can, can use if you know how big, you know, this, you know, um, environment is that you can pull from. But honestly, like I, I would, I tell people to try to get at least 300 people, but it's, it's not, there's no hard and fast right number when you're serving a B2B audience. Right. But the one thing I would recommend is that if you're trying to compare two segments, be it like B2B or B2C or years of experience or people who are effective or whatever that thing might be, make sure you have different enough people in each segment to compare them. Right. That's, that's kind of the bigger key too. Okay. So if I was if I was comparing um, an older demographic to a younger demographic, I would need to make sure I had 300 of each of those demographics to be able to compare. I would say not even necessarily. Like I like to have 100 people in, in, in any one segment. 
but I, I don't think you need 300 in, in each. And like, if you were trying to look at like Gen X versus, you know, baby boomers, I mean, you, you can also look to see like what the US census is and you can balance it out like, like that. Okay. So this is, this is research from, for marketing. So there is a little bit of, of flexibility in here. It doesn't have to be so scientific in terms there. You can still find a lot of good data and trends and so forth, even if your sample size isn't perfect, Love it. but you do need to have an, enough. So it, it, you know, it is representative. How do I get people to actually respond to the survey? Do I need to, and you've talked a little bit about that. Uh, maybe we can give them data that's valuable or we can give them you know, access to something, a webinar. Um, any other advice on, on how to get participants to respond to our surveys? Do, do I need to pay them something? So I know that, so I've worked on many different survey projects. I think that oftentimes offering someone a chance to win something, be it a gift card, be it, cool earbuds, be it, you know, some other thing of the moment can work really well. Um, it gets people to take the survey and it gets people to actually come complete the survey. And that's a huge thing. Um, I've worked with clients and you can see as they put on incentives, like I've worked with a global study and as each region put on incentives, completion rates just, you know, zoomed up. Um, one thing I would not recommend is giving each survey participant a, an actual you know, gift card or some kind of financial incentive if you're going to use your own list, because if you, there's, there's, it's, there's a high probability that you're going to get in spam and fraudulent respondents because people want that incentive. So, I mean, I've had clients do that, but we've done a lot, a lot of data cleaning and quality checks and so forth, just to make sure that the right people are taking the survey. So I had that problem on one survey that I did and about 80% of it was from, we figured was from one spamming source who, I, I think there's spammers out there who just go participate in surveys so they yes. can get all the benefits from the surveys. Yes. So I'm not a big fan of, I think a chance to win, typically you're going to find more of the right people. Cause I don't think the people who want to spam surveys are doing it for a chance to win something. Right. And, and make sure it's useful to make sure the audience knows why they're, they're actually taking their, their time. There's just an intrinsic value to helping people and, and learning about, you know, others who do what, what, what they do. So make that super clear. That really helps too. Yeah. Okay. Um, what do we need to do to make sure that our research is more credible? I always tell people to lead with, with curiosity. Don't try to create research to prove your point create research to say, to test what you think is true and see if it actually is true and be okay with whatever, whatever that the data actually says. So I think that's, that's huge. Um, two, I think that you need to make sure that the way you ask your questions aren't leading. So for instance, in that example I used from the state of marketing, we didn't say how difficult is each of these things in the process. We said how easy or difficult. So even like little wording tweaks like, like that, that you can tell you're not trying to lead people in one direction is a really important thing to do. Um, and then the other thing I would do is add in quality checks to your data. I'm, I'm happy to go into depth with more what those are, but like even like answering, at least asking at least one to two writing questions per survey, especially if you're in B2B and making sure that the answers make sense and they're not gibberish or they even align with what you, 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 you can tell people answer questions if they know what they're talking about or not. Um, so at least having some checks in your data where you, where you can get rid of those responses, just like, like you did in that one example, is really helpful. 
Yeah, that's how we actually found the spammer is is we had a fill in the blank question and they just their script put the same answer in in all of those response in each survey they filled out. It's amazing the lengths that people will go to uh, to do spam within surveys. And you can it is and you can also put quality checks in where people don't know what answers like you can say what department are you part of and people don't know what you're looking for. And so people, only people who say finance or marketing go, go through. So that a lot of times, if you put those types of quality check questions in or other red herring questions in, you won't even see that data to, have, to actually have, have to clean it. Yeah. So there's, you can, there's a lot of different things that you can do, but you have to be smart about it. Okay, so we've, we've done the survey, we've written the great questions, we've gotten a lot of responses. Um, now what? What do we do with the data next? So yes, so I mean, we talked about this briefly, but clean the data. Don't make sure that you don't, don't, just, don't just take what comes in and say, look, we got all of our responses, let's, let's go. But once you clean the data and you have a good data set, um, I always analyze it for like, what are the themes? Like, what are the insights? What are the stories? Really pull those out because you wanna make sure that you have key takeaways. You wanna make sure that you have, you know, really try to, understand and articulate because your reader has this report, here's how you're going to make their life better. Like, you know, make that, make that very, very clear to yourself and make that very clear to your readers. This isn't a bunch of data. This is what we learned that you can up, up, apply to yourself. So I think that is, that's a key thing to, to do. Okay, once we've um, cleaned up the data and we've, analyze the data, how do we present that effectively? So I mean, there's a lot of different things that you can do. I'm always happy to provide examples, but I think a lot of people typically think about doing a, a static PDF blog post, I'm sorry, a, a static PDF, like a very traditional report. Um, those work well in some instances, but I think that marketers can get a lot of value if they think beyond that. So if they wanna be scrappy, like could you put together a, a blog post that talks about all of your findings? Um, Andy Crestadina does this really, really well. He does. He has an annual blogging study, and he gets backlinks to that study every single day. So if you want to, if your goal is backlinks, you know, don't gate it. You know, put together a really comprehensive blog post. Um, I've also been thinking a lot about how to create data that people can interact with. So either like you know, clicking on the data, so you can see how different segments compare, or um, Salesforce owns owns um, a product called Tab Tableau, where you can put together these interactive dashboards, and people can filter the data and really look at it from a very specific segment with a really specific, you know, the lens that matters most to them. Um, but I think anything that we can do where people can get, interact with the data is going to be really useful moving forward, because just a marketer giving the story to someone is useful, but I think people want to see the data and how it, it changes. I think it feels a lot more credible that way if they could see it in different lenses. Thank you so much, Michelle, for sharing your stories and knowledge with us today. Here's some of my key takeaways from this episode. Number one, we can use original research to build our following or become a thought leader. Number two, the four stages of original research are impact, data, explore, and amplification. Number three, the topic of our research should be something that no one has done before. Number four, when drafting questions, we can picture what we want our table of contents to look like and create questions around those key categories. 
Number five, our questions should provoke interesting insights and stories. Number six, to find participants, we can use our own email list, panels of participants, or we can partner with someone and use their email list. Number seven, for a consumer-based audience, we should have at least 1,000 participants. For a B2B audience, we should have at least 300. Number eight, once we have the data, we must clean it before we analyze it. Then we can look for key insights and stories. Number nine, we should try to find an interactive way to present our data to our audience. If you enjoyed this interview and want to learn more about Michelle or connect with her, you can find her on LinkedIn or visit her website, mantisresearch.com. You can also check out episode one for this interview. And there's links to these sites in the blog post for this episode at monetizationnation.com. Do you want to be a better digital monetizer? Then please follow these channels to receive free digital monetization content. Number one, you can subscribe to the free monetization e-magazine at monetizationnation.com. Number two, you can subscribe to the Monetization Nation podcast or YouTube channel. And number three, you can follow Monetization Nation on Instagram or Twitter. Have you done original research? If so, what process did you use and how did it help you? Please join our private Monetization Nation Facebook group and share your insights with other digital monetizers. Thanks for joining me for this episode. I wish you success in your original research marketing. Do you want to become a better digital monetizer? To receive great monetization stories and secrets, please go to monetizationnation.com and join free. And if you liked today's episode, please subscribe to the show and share it.